This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, spoke at the Republican National Convention Tuesday night. The way each of us can best ensure our freedoms is by electing leaders who don't just talk, but who deliver. The fact that Pompeo was part of the RNC at all was a break with precedent. Past secretaries of state have steered clear of the nominating conventions. There's an old tradition in U.S. diplomacy that partisanship stops at the water's edge. But there was Pompeo at the RNC in a personal capacity, he says, not as secretary, appearing in a video taped from the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. And their freedom's more secure because President Trump has put his America First vision into action. It may not have made him popular in every foreign capital, but it's worked. Pompeo was there to boost Trump's America First foreign policy. And that is the brand. But it falls short of describing how the U.S. moves through the world. What is... Trump foreign policy in 2020? Well, you know, it's a good question. I I mean, I've been studying foreign policy for a long time, and I've said this before. If you were to ask me today, what is U.S. foreign policy? I I would be hard-pressed to answer that. This is Slate's Fred Kaplan. He writes about war and U.S. foreign policy. There isn't any consistency to it, except that it's it's something that that, uh, supports Trump in, in, in the world of domestic politics. Something that supports the president in the world of domestic politics is not supposed to be on the State Department business cards or mission statement. And Fred says after nearly four years, America First has destabilized international relations and turned the U.S. into a loner state. Do you think the president wants deference, respect, acknowledgement of American centrality without having to do anything to get it. Yeah, exactly. He thinks we're the strongest country on earth. All we have to do is scowl at something like North Korea and they will tremble in their boots and, you know, succumb to our pressures. Uh, He learned that, no, that really didn't do the trick. And so, you know, countries are going their own way. They're doing things that are in their interests, regardless of what the United States threatens to do. And so it actually becomes a harder world for the U.S. to assert its interests in in a way that, that doesn't spark wars. Today on the show, why America first increasingly means America alone. I'm Ray Suarez, filling in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service 
everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Is the United States today the leader of an alliance, a group of like mind, like worldview, like goals? Well, I mean, I think we are to the extent that I think this could be somewhat recoverable under a different president. I mean, you look at certain meetings of the G7, you know, the group of basically democratic countries or the G20, which includes some countries that aren't so democratic, but that are economic powers. There is, in at least some of the countries that attend these things, a yearning for American leadership. There is an acknowledgement for example, that the European Union cannot go this alone. There, you know, when, when Trump made his threats against NATO, there were a lot of Europeans who said, you know, we need to provide for our own defense. But you know what? They really can't. There, there isn't the political uh, constituency for the kinds of defense budgets that they would be needed. NATO, there's always a U.S. general who's in charge of it. There, there isn't the kind of cohesion in the European Union to, to defer to one of the countries as, as the leader. And, and in Asia particularly, I mean, J- Japan and uh, South Korea and Australia, these are countries that really yearn for American leadership because they have a very hard time leading themselves. The thing about leadership is that it's defined by how good you are at getting other people to follow you. Under the Trump administration, fewer and fewer countries follow the U.S.'s lead on foreign policy. The most recent example of this came last week. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo headed up to the United Nations to urge the rest of the Security Council to restore sanctions on Iran. In this case, Pompeo wanted an arms embargo to be extended. He said the embargo was necessary because Iran had violated terms of its nuclear deal. The only problem was, under Donald Trump, the U.S. had already withdrawn from that deal. And Pompeo went to the U.N. Security Council and said, Iran is a dangerous country. We cannot lift the embargo. Uh, Here's our resolution saying that the embargo will continue. And he lost by an embarrassing margin There were only two countries that voted in favor of this resolution, the United States and the Dominican Republic. Two voted against it, two of the uh, permanent members of the council, China and Russia, and all of the others, including our closest allies, abstained. I mean, this was just an embarrassing, an embarrassing defeat. Even the countries that, that say, okay, yeah, we're still all together in the alliance, and we understand that you have a lot of power for us, They want to dissociate themselves from the United States. And then Pompeo said, it's a shame that our European allies have taken the side of the Ayatollah. Well, no, they haven't taken the side of the Ayatollah. They have taken the side of what they see as international law. You know, the Iran nuclear deal was codified as a UN Security Council resolution by pulling out of it for no reason. I mean, there is always a, you, they, we could have pulled out of it even under the terms of the agreement if, if Iran was found to be in violation of it. At the time, they were not found to be in violation of it. In fact, they were explicitly found by international inspectors to be complying with it in full. 
So, in fact, the United States is seen by a lot of our allies as an outlaw country. And, and essentially, what's going on with that UN vote is a lot of countries just kind of hanging loose and hoping that after the election, there will be a new American president, Joseph Biden, who, of course, was vice president under Obama when the nuclear deal was negotiated, who will get us back under that, uh, under that regime. And, and in fact, even Iran wants to be there. Iran prefers that because economic sanctions are painful, even without the additional penalties the Trump administration is pushing. Fred says the administration's whole approach to Iran is extreme, so extreme as to be ineffective. He can't imagine these kinds of hardline tactics working with any regional power. It would be as if, uh, in the early days of arms control with the Soviet Union, the United States had said, okay, no, 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 it's not good enough that you really have put a limit on the number of long-range missiles and warheads or whatever. We need you to abandon Marxism-Leninism, or we need you to dissolve the Warsaw Pact, where you controlled politics of Eastern Europe. You know, that's just not the way it works. You, you, you get a deal with what is plausible, and to tell you the truth, the Iran nuclear deal was... It exceeded most people's expectations of what was possible with Iran, even even in its own terms. They essentially want Iran to become a different kind of government from what it is. And that would be nice, but that's not in the offing. Uh, sometimes uh, anti-Trump commentators, essayists, pundits, whatever, observe that the Trump team seem to want nothing more than armed confrontation with Iran. And that... That strikes me as a sort of breezy, easy, cavalier analysis, but is I'm wondering if there's a kernel of truth to it, whether whacking General Soleimani or uh, challenging Iran in the Persian Gulf at every opportunity, making small incidents into big ones, the possibility of something going really wrong doesn't seem to frighten Trump's foreign policy team. Well, I think it depends who you're talking about. I think John Bolton... You know, he made it clear coming into office as, as national security advisor that he wanted regime change in Iran and North Korea forcibly if necessary. I think Pompeo has also made it clear, especially when talking with, with groups of Iranian emigres, that that is what he wants. I think one thing that we have learned about, about Donald Trump is that he personally is not itching for war. <laughs> uh, now... Could he be, uh, you know, roped into one? I think yes. I think the, the, the killing of Soleimani and then the Iranian uh, retaliation, if the Iranian retaliation had been a bit stronger than it was, I think he might have been pushed to retaliate. And then he gives, his aides are doing everything they can to exploit his his dislike for these kinds of countries and especially his dislike of anything that was negotiated by Barack Obama, uh, I think that they pushed him into uh, a, a dangerously hawkish position. Given the, the unwillingness or the inability to concede to Iran 
a kind of regional power status, to recognize that it's a big country with a lot of pull and a lot of influence. Uh, what's the end game? Where does this lead? This looks like a perpetually boiling pot with no, you know, particular resolution. Is the U.S. ready to do, trying to do what it would take to overthrow the Islamic Republic after more than 40 years? Well, I think the dominant politics in the Middle East, certainly since the end of the Cold War, and especially since uh, the end of the Iraq War, is the divide between Sunni, Arab, and, and Shiite. Obama tried to conciliate this match. Uh, it didn't work out, uh, partly because that divide really is dominant. It, it's almost unbreakable. Trump has made a decision to join in on this regional civil sectarian war on the side of the... Um, of, of the Sunnis. And he has made no effort. You know, John Kerry would send all these delegations to Vienna to try to work out some post-Assad politics in Syria. Trump has, shows no, no interest in any kind of diplomatic forum that can settle these conflicts or even that, that can make them less violent. He is a combatant in the... Uh, in, in the war, either with, not with troops and with, then with arms and with aid and, and with other things. And so, no, they, they, don't, they don't see it, nor do they particularly desire a, a peaceful solution to, or, or even some kind of uh, long-term Cold War entente. They see this as, as a war that, uh, that's going to go on, and they, they're on what they see as the right side of it. Given what you just laid out, what do you make of Americans general seeding of foreign policy input to the executive branch. It's basically been given to the elected leadership. And, you know, unlike other times in our even recent past, there's, there's just not a lot of, not a, you know, <laughs> not a lot of back and forth over what this country might be doing in the rest of the world, what it should be doing in the rest of the world, what it might best be doing in the rest of the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I, I think this has been true for a long time. I think it's been true uh, largely since the end of the draft. If we're not sending over boys and girls to, to, who, who, don't, who didn't volunteer to fight uh, to go fight and die, uh, it's no longer such a pressing issue. Now, I, th I think that the, the big picture of international politics. I mean, until the end of the Cold War, there, there was kind of a consensus that, you know, the West is the good guys and the East are kind of the bad guys, but let's try to make peace with the East so there's not World War III. But yeah, I, there, there isn't a lot of passion to be uh, uh, eked from the American public on, on any of these issues. But no, I think one thing where there could be, and there is interest, is Congress. But you know, Except for a few years after the passage of the War Powers Act in the mid-70s, which was the height of the Vietnam War and the Watergate crisis, and when Congress saw a, an out-of-control executive branch and wanted to assert its Article I constitutional powers again, except for really a few years after then, Congress has been pretty pliant as well. Uh, Congress does not want to take responsibility. If, if things go south in a war, 
They don't want to share the blame for it. They'll pass budgets for it, but they don't, they don't want to uh, have any say. In, in so a lot of this has been an abrogation uh, by Congress. And, and again, uh, even, even this is, is nothing new. It's really been going on for quite a long time. It's about 70 days till the election. Are we up for a conversation about what it means to be strong? One of the most reliable applause lines at President Trump's rallies have to do with the assertion that the United States must be strong. And obviously people love that idea. Uh, But we never talk about what that means. What does it mean to be strong in 2020? Does anybody have an appetite for that? Or are we just going to have another national election where we continue to have the biggest military budgets in the world, um, a lot of obligations in the rest of the world, and just don't really talk about it. Yeah, it's, I think it's very hard to talk about this in the context of an election. Uh, I mean, look, uh, as you say, the, the defense budget is now about $750 billion, which is, which is, you know, an all-time record. I mean, even, or at least, except for when we've been in a big war. Uh, I mean, in real terms, you know, looking at it with accounting for inflation, the Reagan, the Reagan Cold War budget wasn't this wasn't this high. Uh, I haven't heard any talk among any Democrats for cutting the defense budget. Uh, you know, Senator Sanders introduced an amendment to cut the defense budget by ten percent. It got very very few votes. I think there might be at some point. Uh, in another administration, a serious debate on the inside of what strength means and of what the defense budget ought to look like. But yeah, I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's the kind of thing that can easily be discussed in popular politics. Fred, thanks for joining us on What Next. Okay, thank you. Fred Kaplan is the author of The Bomb. Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. That's the show. What Next is produced by Danielle Hewitt, Jason DeLeon, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. We're saying farewell this week to our fill-in producer, Daniel Avis. You are a champ, Daniel. Thanks for all your hard work. I'm Ray Suarez, filling in for Mary Harris. I'll talk to you Monday.